time stuff that I wish I had. The big time stuff that'll make you mad. The big time stuff. I like the big time stuff. I like the big time stuff that I never had. Hi, everyone. We're very excited today to have as a guest on our podcast, Mr. Frederick Farina. Fred is the Chief Innovation and Corporate Partnerships Officer at California Institute of Technology, Caltech. His responsibilities include commercializing inventions that are made at Caltech and at the, J at the Jet Propulsion Laboratories, JPL, in partnership with NASA. Um, he does this through the creation of new startup ventures and partnerships with established companies. So uh, not only that, Fed, Fred... <laughs> Not only that, but Fred was in his earlier life a semi-pro tennis player. He's born on the island of Corsica. He's got a quite a worldly vision. Um, he holds a degree in electrical engineering um, from the Institut National de Sciences in uh, Lyon, France, and he's a graduate of Caltech as well, where he received a master's degree in electrical engineering. Uh, he's also a registered patent agent with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. So please help me in welcoming Fred Farina to our podcast. We're very excited to have him. Yeah. 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 Well, Neil, tell me, I think, um, you know, it was interesting researching Fred and then just the Office of Technology Transfer and what universities have been doing in that space. Is there um, a sense of competition or partnership do you feel with a lot of venture capital firms in the space that universities are now uh, growing and into in terms of patents? And so it's still very much about transfer. the team, right? Uh -huh. So I think you're getting a lot of phenomenal research. And I think you said it to me this way, at Caltech, they could probably build anything, right? And they, they demonstrated that with the ventilator recently as well, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and massive, it, it, you know, in very quick time, you know, massively mm -hmm. scaled up operation to do it. Um, even though it was mostly remote, which was very interesting as well. Mm -hmm. um, but it's still really about the team. So, you know, you have to have a really cool technology, um, mm -hmm. and then you've got to have the right team to execute on it. And, and Fred clearly understands that too, just, you know, having, having um, seen a bunch of his comments kind of everywhere. Um, yeah. But I, I don't feel like there's, like, so much, quote, competition. Um, there might be at say MIT for Bob Langer's research because Bob has helped take like 50 drugs to market or something like that, you know, out mm -hmm. of MIT. Mm -hmm. um, and there might be for, you know, the, the top published and cited authors in the world mm -hmm. um, who have had successful companies. But I kind of think once you're out of that, that first realm, the competition isn't as massive. Um, right. And maybe it's just part of our thesis and I'm not seeing it well because we're happy to take a year to follow something right that's just that's just standard practice for us um so yeah I don't see a ton in terms of competition from VC firm to VC firm ah it looks like we have Mr. Farina on the line yes. Frederick hello this is Chris hello and Neil Modi Fred how are you good to good to talk to you again yeah good to talk to you <laughs> Too, Neil, since the Japanese restaurant. Since the Japanese restaurant. restaurant, right? Yeah, since that uh, that, that sushi restaurant. Yeah. yeah. Uh, that we that miss a lot. 
Yeah, I do miss the uni pasta very much. There. Oh my god, so <laughs> delicious! Yeah. Well, Fred, I I recorded a, an intro for you. Neil, do you think that one was okay? Yeah, but let's let Fred give an intro for him as well for himself. Fred. <laughs> yeah. Fred, Fred, I just I want to limit your intro to twenty five minutes. <laughs> I just want to throw that out. There's a, there's a lot to say. Yeah, if you, if you don't mind giving a brief intro of yourself, that'd be great. Uh, how far back do I go? Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, kind of. You know, it's interesting. I, I, you know, I, I knew about you from Chris. I'd spent some time with you, and I know Chris mentions when he gets together with you. Um, and I did a bunch of research on you for the podcast, and it was kind of interesting to see like how long you've been thinking about the field of technology transfer, and maybe you take us back and give us just a little bit of that journey that you feel is pertinent. Okay. Um, so let's see. Um, I There's no right or wrong here, and if you want to swear yeah. about somebody, we're happy to cut it out afterwards. Don't, don't uh, worry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, so I, I come from across the world and uh, from an island uh, in the Mediterranean called Corsica, where I spent my childhood and then... Um, went on to college to study engineering in um, Lyon, France. Uh, after that, I was not ready to get in the workforce and uh, wanted to learn English and a new adventure. So I, I uh, applied to schools in the US, uh, get in at Caltech uh, for a master's program and uh, get a master's at Caltech, again, in electrical engineering. Then worked at JPL for some time on GPS systems to monitor the deformation of the Earth, uh, Earth's crust and for earthquake prediction and all that, early days of GPS in the early 90s. Uh, my boss moved to Miami. I went to a research institute there, part of University of Miami uh, on Key Biscayne uh, for six, seven years, uh, studying plate motion all over the Caribbean and going to the field to set up GPS receivers to measure fault motion, all that stuff. That was a fun job. Um, then I decided to I need to get serious. Uh, uh, at the same time, there was a the tech kind of boom on the West Coast. Uh, and uh, I thought I was missing out. So I decided to come back. And I always liked California better than uh, Florida. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I wanted to get back here, so I, I, uh, I was in, in, interested in intellectual property and entrepreneurship, all these things. And the easiest was to just get a job at a law firm doing patent work. Uh, with my background, they were very, uh, they were hiring a lot of engineers to do patent work at the time. There was a shortage, and so it was easy to get in. They just took your pulse. You're alive. You have an engineering degree. <laughs> you're in. Um, so I spent just uh, a couple of years doing that, and it was interesting because I was looking at all kinds of technologies, uh, helping inventors patent these technologies. But I was missing what, what happens after that. You know, how does it get commercialized? Does it, uh, how does it get to market? And uh, you're cut out as a patent agent or patent attorney. Um, and and so at the same time, a friend, a classmate from Caltech, told me that. Caltech had started an office of technology transfer just a few years before, and and um, and so I went. Uh, had never heard of technology transfer before, and they wanted someone with IP experience with uh, 
double E background and preferably a Caltech alum. And I guess I fit the bill. <laughs> you uh, met the bill. Yes. Interestingly, uh, and, and some uh, before me, there was an, a guy named Fred who has, had a master's from Caltech in EE. They had made an offer to before even they met me, and he uh, he had turned down the job. So I showed up. I showed up. My, you know, my name is Fred, EE, uh, Caltech. <laughs> also, we both worked at JPL. I was like, okay, this is the same person. <laughs> they just and had to, <laughs> right, right. No change to the PR. Right, no change <laughs> to even to the <laughs> HR <laughs> records almost. Um, anyway, so and uh, now I've been there for um, 19 years. This last month. Uh, and it's been a pretty incredible journey of uh, a lot of evolution in the field and uh, from when I started and, and very exciting, you know, job changing, uh, exciting technologies, exciting institution. And it's, it's gone really by very fast. So here we are now. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. I mean, you've had a great career in that space. I mean, you were working with the pioneer, Larry Gilbert, for a while. Yeah. I mean, he's really the father of tech transfer. Yeah, he's and the one who hired me. Is that right? What yeah. was it like working with with, uh, with Larry Gilbert? Uh, it was like uh, the, the best, sweetest uh, experience. Um, he was a really good person, you know, big heart. Uh, his interview was basically, and he was a little grumpy, you know, when he came, <laughs> uh, he was like Boston born, raised, um, Red Sox oh. fan. He always wear, wore a baseball cap, uh, Red Sox most of the time. Um, and you know, his interview, when he interviewed me, he was like very, um, he talked the whole time, the whole hour. Didn't hardly ask me any questions. <laughs> it was a monologue, not an interview. Huh? Yeah, and I, I kind of did decide on paper that they had it with like interviews and things like that, and I, I fit the bill. So you know, uh, and he told me the only question I, he asked me: "So where are you from? France, huh?" Well, the French, you know, they're always in the way. They're always trying to, um, you know, the European the European Union was trying to get a, a unity patent in 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 Europe, so I have one patent for the entire. European Union and the French got in the way and they're always trying to get in the way and, and what's wrong with them. Uh, <laughs> he was so. taking it out on you, Fred. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, yeah, I, that's why I'm here. I don't live there anymore. <laughs> I'm in the way now. <laughs> uh, but so after that, uh, incredible experience. He had seen every situation possible. He was at the very beginning, as you said, of uh, he was one of the pioneers, the fathers of tech transfer, if not the one uh, of the the law that got passed in 1980 to for universities to to do tech transfer, called the Bayh-Dole Act. Um, and so, you know, it was amazing to learn from him. He's and he was very hands off, uh, uh, very humble. Like if we disagree with him, he would love. Okay, well, try it. You know, uh, for example, one example I would say is that, you know, he knew that marketing technologies out of universities typically doesn't work, and and which doesn't make any sense to most people, and, and until you had the experience, because we we're dealing with a very early stage science and and uh, inventions yeah. and technology, 
And and so some people think, okay, you know, what I thought when I was joining Caltech, like they have these incredible technologies on the shelf, and I'm going to just go out and talk to IBM and Abbott and Amgen and HP and Intel, and I'm going to get them to buy these amazing things. And, you know, so I came in with that kind of, why not? You know, I, I can do this. Uh, and he said, okay, well, all right, try it. And uh, six months later, I came back and was like, well, I tried about 10 companies. And they were like, uh, come back in five years when you actually have this kind of prototype. And it's, you know, you've proven this and that. And, and, and so he was absolutely right. Um, marketing to big companies doesn't work. They're, they're looking for something that's a couple of years for market uh, at, at most. And everything we have uh, in, your, uh, in university, most, most things, 99% of things are uh, five to 10 years from the actual product. So large companies are not going to be the ones who typically invest in these uh, technologies. And that's why he was um, really focused on startup companies. And you know, if there's a, an invent, uh, a technology that's interest, interesting to a large company, they'll come to you because they do their competitive intelligence. They, they, they go to conferences and professors go out and talk about what they do. Uh, so you don't have to go after them. Just let them come to you. Uh, but on the other hand, for if you want to make a difference, trying to create the elements of a startup and position it for an outside investment and and down the path of development, uh, that's going to be much more uh, uh, effective and rewarding. And so that's what I, you know, the uh, the office was has been focused on for since he created the office is to help well, faculty and students with startups. Yeah, that's fascinating because I always wondered, you know, how does a university um, office of technology transfer help these startups, help these companies really through that valley of death. You know, right. That you, the gap between when they have government grants, foundation grants, and support from the university. Yeah. Making a late stage product development really work. Right. It seems like the VC, you know, commercialization side, the traditional VCs have a, a leg up there. What's Caltech do um, to shepherd companies through that period? Yeah. So, uh, like the rest of academia, the model has, has evolved uh, a lot in the last. 10 years, I would say, uh, or less. Uh, so you have to go back to the big bang of tech transfer, which is 1980, this Bidal Act that was passed by Congress on the the last day in office of Jimmy Carter, I think. He signed it in office in, you know, in the omnibus bill. Um, and that gave the right uh, to own IP by universities that received federal funding. And before that, the IP was owned by the agency that were funding the, the, the work. And, you know, they're not in the business of, uh, of commercializing. And so a lot of the great inventions were not stayed on the shelves, basically, and didn't go anywhere. Uh, and this act said that... Um, Universities can own their invention, and they have a mandate to try to commercialize. So, you give the power to the local, um, you know, the, the local universities who are, you know, who know their their 
their, their technologies, they're familiar with it, and they're going to try to go out and commercialize and have the right to own these inventions. And uh, before that, there were three universities that had figured out a way to, to do it anyway, Stanford, MIT, and Wisconsin. Wisconsin was the first um, to do that, by the way, in the, in the thing in the 20s or 30s, uh, by doing individual agreements with all the agencies, so they're able to, to do that through that. Um, and, and so that 1980 act really created the whole world of tech transfer and that every university had to have, had to have an office to deal with inventions that are fairly funded, uh, deciding whether we're going to patent them or not, uh, and then having a mandate to commercialize them through licensing or helping with startups. Um, so the, most of the history of tech transfers in 1980 has been focused on a more passive model by universities where they patent inventions that are promising, and then they go out and license them to startups or large companies. And, and, and so the Stanford and MIT models have been very much just like that, what I call the more traditional model that's getting a little bit dated, which is uh, you patent stuff. Your office is basically an, a patent and, li and licensing. You, know, you patent inventions and you license them out. Uh, and you are more passive in a way you let uh, the VCs and uh, entrepreneurs come to you to, to take them out. And I think that can work well at places like you know, Stanford and, and MIT because they're in, you know, in, two, in the two hotbeds of entrepreneurship in the country. So there's always people um, in the VC community, entrepreneurs uh, in Silicon Valley or you know, in, in uh, Cambridge who walk the labs, who are uh, always talking to faculty and, 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 and so the, the institution, the university doesn't have to do much to, to help with that. It's organically happening. Uh, the rest of us who live in areas that are not as, you know, LA is coming, is becoming really good with that, but uh, it's more recent. But other areas, now if you are in, you know, University of Kansas or Washington University uh, or, you know, place in the middle of the country where there's no VCs, uh, very few entrepreneurs, uh, it, it, it's even harder, right? So all, the, all these other places have to uh, come up with, with something else other than just patent and patenting and licensing. And so it's kind of true for us too, and not that we also have to, because we had a, since, you know, Larry created this office in 1995, We've come up really quickly to the top of the field in terms of number of inventions we get, number of licenses, and more importantly, number of startups. Uh, and per faculty, we actually do better than MIT and Stanford and any university, actually. Um, Congratulations. I know Caltech uh, punches above their weight. Yeah, it we're, is. For... Yeah, and we're small. You well, know, no, clearly so. not. Hold on, clearly not. Maybe they just have the system designed better, not a punch yeah. above their well, weight. Well, 300 faculty and what, about yeah. 2,000 students? Yeah. So, it, but interest. what Chris says is true across Caltech activities in terms of, uh, you know, paper output, publications, uh, citations. Uh, and so if you, all, if you normal, normalize all that by our size, either by the amount of deferral funding we get or... Um, a number of faculty and students, then you get uh, numbers that are really um, oversized. Wait, for, so can for, we? Yeah. Can we ask you about numbers? Like, 
how yeah. how much and maybe you can't answer this which i appreciate how how much how much in revenue does caltech make a year on on licensing uh, so that's a whole big discussion um so um it's not a simple I... number well it, it is and it is not um uh, so the, the the answer is the whole the whole point of tech transfer in academia is not to make money uh, it's to get technologies out that are funded initially by the taxpayers and to make sure that eventually the public benefits from these uh, inventions, right? And with new products and new services and new therapy, new devices, new whatever it is that um, ends up in the, in the public market, in the, with the public. Um, so, um, so that's the primary goal. Now, Turns out that uh, occasionally universities are going to make a lot of money doing that because they, when they do a license, they get uh, you know royalties and equity in the in the companies typically that uh, that they license to for the, if they're startups, and and so the revenue model for this is even more skewed than the venture model where you have ten percent of the deals that make up for all the losses. And maybe you have two huge deals that you know is gravy for the VC fund, the successful ones. Uh, so if you look at the history of MIT, Caltech, uh, Stanford, you know there's one big hit every decade or so, um, and uh, so and in the past, the ones that have made a lot of money were drug deals, so to speak. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> so when the university, you know, came up with a compound that cures, say, you know, prostate cancer, UCLA had one uh, not too long ago, and then you can license the compound to um, pharma, and they commercialize, and you get a one percent royalty on sales. It's a billion-dollar drug, and do the math, uh, the kind of revenues you get. Most of the time, we uh, we don't make a lot of money. And there's one example of um, uh, of an equity deal that returned a lot of money to to Stanford, and that's Google. So you know it's unicorns basically. Um, so most, eighty-five percent of tech transfer offices in the country are operating in the red, meaning that you know it's an activity that's supported by the university. The same way they support their office of sponsored research or their general counsel's office, it's part of the doing business for for universities now. You know, so you have to have one, and and, and uh, occasionally you may make money, but again, it's not the whole goal. Now, for us at Caltech, we've been fortunate to have had two big hits since uh, the beginning of tech transfer. One has to do with uh, uh, the automated DNA sequencer. Uh, that was invented by Lee Hood uh, in the late yeah. 80s at Caltech. So now lives in the University of, you know, right. lives in Washington, Seattle, yeah. rather. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so we got, uh, you know, north of $100 million royalties from these kinds of things uh, over the years. And then another one that I was involved with uh, when I first started and then took it to uh, revenue is the uh, CMOS image sensor uh, technology that's some uh, technology at JPL. I should have mentioned that 
we, we, we manage uh, IP for Caltech and JPL, because Caltech owns IP at a JPL. And uh, for the Saturn mission in, in the 90s, uh, they had to develop um, smaller image sensors. The, all the spacecraft were getting smaller and uh, had to use less power, more efficient, all that. And so they had to come up with new uh, image sensors uh, to take pictures of, of, of planets during flyby, you know, of, of the planets. And, and so they had to come up with a sensor that, was, that could be uh, much smaller than the original ones. And, and before that, you had CCD technology, that, that was the digital camera kind of technology that was much more uh, bulky, uh, used more power. Uh, and so they came up with a new way of putting the, the image sensor on a chip with the rest of the electronics on a CMOS process. And, and that allowed miniaturization uh, and also uh, very low power consumption. Um, and so we patented these technologies, and then the company was started. Uh, long story short, uh, they got bought by a Micron. Uh, Micron was not interested in paying royalties to us, so they gave us the patents back, basically. And, and, and we were sitting on a large portfolio of fundamental patents for this technology in the you know early mid 2000s when the digital camera you know technologies was taking off and they were starting to put them on cell phones um it was a bit later when they put them on cell phones but uh it's funny because we were laughing at uh at the time like people suggesting like to have a camera on the phone was so stupid like what would you have a camera on the phone. <laughs> Unbelievable, right? That makes no sense. Why yeah. would you do that? Right. <laughs> a phone is for talking. Exactly. That makes absolutely no sense. But um, the whole, as finally the, you know, it became the, the volume, you know, a huge volume of, of uh, manufacturers started putting these things on, on phones and now it became what you know it became. And so, we had to, uh, we actually, for this one, we had to uh, enforce our patents against 20 companies. Uh, <laughs> wow. Mostly foreign companies because, you know, uh, you know, Samsung and Sony and Panasonic and Canon and all the other all the, all the camera companies. Uh, and, but, you know, we, we did it in a very academic way in the sense that, okay, well, we, we we will enforce them, but we want to talk to you. We want to negotiate with you. It's, you know, please take a license. Here's these 65 patents that cover the basics of the technology, and uh, we're here to talk. So we we ended up, you know, settling with all of them basically, and licensing to the entire field, and that brought uh, quite a bit of money also to Caltech. Um, so these are our two big hits. And mean, meanwhile, we've had uh, you know. When we license uh, patents to a company, we get an equity position in the company. And a lot of time we get diluted as they go on to uh, raise money. And, uh, but sometimes they get acquired um, early on. Uh, and that equity can turn into cash or have IPOs. So we, we've made quite a bit of money on these uh, equity deals as well. Uh, but it's it's never as much as the the royalty deals that I mentioned or enforcements or drug um, licenses, uh, except for Google. 
uh, where Stanford actually made $330 million, I think, on, on the uh, Google IPO from the stock they own from the license. Is that uh, still a record, Fred, in yeah, terms in, of technology in terms of, transfer and the rewards? In, in terms of equity, not royalties. Mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, Columbia, uh, uh, NYU, uh, UCLA also have had drugs that uh, have brought in, you know, $100 million a year for like 10 years or, mm -hmm. or five years or so. Um, yeah, these are more and more rare because uh, lots of reasons. But so, yeah. yeah. I saw, Fred, that, you know, um, to confirm what you said earlier, you know, with Stanford's patent portfolio, it was about two-thirds pharma or drug-related. Um, it may have changed since, you know, Lyrica, which was one of their successes, um, for neuropathic pain, uh, came off of patent. But is there a, a, a mix that Caltech favors? Are you mostly in specialized technology? Is there any... Pharma, yeah. So there's um, in terms of the technologies that. Uh, so it depends on the strengths of the university, I think. So for example, Hopkins is solely in and or more like healthcare and pharma and things like that, right? Because that's what they do. Um, uh, and we are more like MIT, where but everywhere. But we don't have a med, a med school like MIT, and so we do have things in the pharma uh, in, uh, area, uh, but we can't take it uh, to you know to clinical trials because we have a med school. We have to do it outside, so it's probably early stage. But you know we have things that um, for um, you know drug cancer drug technologies that went to startups. We have uh, uh, drugs against uh, potential therapies for autism. So we have quite a bit in pharma. Uh, um, I'm interested to see if he sees some of these trends ahead of time, right? Like this crazy idea of cameras on phones. <laughs> you know, I wonder how many right. of these things he gets to see even once a decade. Yeah, I wonder how long that technology lay fallow when, you know, they received it back from Micron, how long they sat on it before really that took off again. Cameras on cell phones. Well, and I don't even remember the Saturn, well, he said it was from the Saturn mission, right? So were they launching uh -huh. some rover or something for Saturn? I don't even remember the mission. So it must be a while ago. Mm -hmm. Not that I'm keeping up on all of NASA's launches every moment yeah. <laughs> for something, but I don't think you'd recall it in recent history either. Do you see universities partnering with VCs um, especially there, you in know, that last stage of commercialization. And... Par partnering is a strange word because if you have a platform, you want to interact with everybody and they have a platform, right? You don't want to be exclusive. But I did see that, I think it was the University of Oxford sold half of their IP to a fund. Um, half of their the royalty going forward and half of their, maybe it was their old past IP. I didn't get into the details. So, you know, I think you're probably going to start to see more of it because what's stopping Caltech from starting a med school? Is it is it as simple as $250 million? Could could somebody have a financial instrument that would allow, um, that would be able to be unlocked from some of the IP that would allow for that? Potentially. So, you know, I think we're going to see uh, uh, even greater change 
and the evolution of those technology transfer offices over the next couple of years. And I can't imagine how all of them work other than that one single instance. But, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, we'll say, nobody really had heard of incubators either, right, for startup companies. And now there's massive bubbles of them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I mean, yeah, it's pretty fascinating to see the development of it. Um, I kind of figured there's going to be a bubble of incubators, you know, like 10 years ago, and it would, they would, you know, rise and collapse, but that hasn't been the case yet because it doesn't take that many winners probably, you know, still when you're charging, you know, five or 7% equity to have success, to get to success. You know, maybe I don't know what the math is, but maybe you only need one out of 20 versus what traditional VCs say is like one out of 10. Yeah, they say, what, 90% failure rate, but uh, is that because 80% of all statistics are made up? <laughs> no, no, no. I, I think a lot of, so so uh, of like the 1,500 VCs, this is probably two-year-old data now or three-year-old data now, um, 90% of them are, are focused on, or 95%, 98% are focused on um, tech companies, and they're very hyperbolic growth curves. They either grow, grow and take, you know, monopoly or they fail a lot of the time. You don't see as many, you know, in-betweens um, versus like med devices, the stuff we look at a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I can... Where, because if oh, you have an, a flash of genius, you can try and take it to market. Right, But right. That's, that's impossible with, you know, pizza arbitrage does not exist with med devices. <laughs> well, I was going to say, yeah, it's, uh, you know, while we were asking Fred, welcome back, uh, well, we were asking about what the sweet spot is for Caltech. Yeah. And you were sharing with us about that. Right. Um, Can I make another comment on what you were, I was hearing? Because I, um, somebody actually told me yesterday, um, an entrepreneur from the Bay Area that they looked at VC data. Uh, in fact, you know, the, the really successful funds, you know, the Sequoias and Kleiner, the big ones, uh, it's not that they have more winners than the others. It's that the few that they have are much bigger. Uh, so it's all very skewed at the, at the, at the top. So um, I actually also think there's a numbers game. Um, those very big VCs, um, I'm not so sure are truly positive cash returners. What do you right? mean, Neil? So, I mean, there's two real games in the, in the venture capital business. There's one that's assets under management, which is what you can think about for like Andreessen Orwitz and um, Sequoia or Kleiner. Um, and then there's outsized returns, which is what you can think about with like Zoic. Um, and, and other smaller funds. So I think the bigger you get, the harder it is to actually get that massive return. So yes, they may be getting larger returns, but you know, there's a lot of data to say that I, I, even though Andreessen Horowitz is in, you know, you know, in the top five VCs in the country that they're not actually making any money for anybody. It, it's almost like a, a negative bond. Negative interest rates on the negative on, interest on rate. The yeah, 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 yeah. So like, I, I think they're pay, probably paying you 95% of your money or 92% of your money, but it may not matter because you're willing to hang out until they have that 30% year return. Cause you need to have that, you know, Tiffany's in your portfolio, something that's got a massive brand name in your portfolio. Mm-hmm. Is there Fred, um, it, it seems there's, of course, like we were talking about the difference between most VCs um, and what they wish to commercialize and what the technologies are that university uh, t- 
tech transfer offices work on. There's much more a focus on, um, you know, uh, public goods, <laughs> healthcare, things that are meant to improve society. I mean, I don't see universities working on, you know, uh, new cosmetics or. Uh, <laughs> right. No, it definitely that Go actually pro. definitely happens too. Sure. That definitely uh, happens. Well, uh-huh. you know what we do is uh, at the top universities that we do fundamental research. So, uh, and occasionally you stumble on something that has applications in all, all kinds of areas, uh, but the bulk of the technologies are focused to toward uh, at least at Caltech and uh, healthcare is a big one. Uh, for us, because we have strong engineering approach to things, even in the biology area, uh, a lot of the um, medical engineering stuff, uh, devices, um, it, you know, drug delivery, sensors, things like that are, are big for us. Um, you know, it's a lot of engineers and biologists working together and chemists uh, solving medical issues. Uh, so. And that's that's a little bit different from the pure pharma kind of thing, you know. It's just uh, so, uh, and then there's the whole suite of things in the um, environment area, you know, solar technologies, uh, windows, and uh, paint uh, that uh, you know turns solar into energy and things like that that uh, are based on fundamental discoveries. But then you can find uh, actual applications in the real world. Uh, and that's what oftentimes the, the, the challenge that we face is that, okay, we have uh, this new discovery here and it can be helpful in healthcare, in aerospace, and in you know environmental. And so what is gonna be the sweet, the killer app we go after you know, before, before um, anything else? So prioritizing that, and that's always the challenge at the early stage. Uh, and I, it, yeah, and then you have things like you know, talk about cosmetics. We have uh, a um, a geologist that was working on these uh, uh, naturally occurring uh, sands in certain areas in the world that uh, are perfectly round and um, non-abrasive, and and they found out that they are very effective for exfoliation. Much better. Yeah, I was going to say for for your <laughs> facial, yeah, and and much better than what uh, the you know walnut shells and things like that do. When you look in the microscope, these are very jagged and they actually rip your skin, mm-hmm. uh, and they're environmentally friendly. Mm-hmm. Uh, unlike the other things that were the the beads that we're using, they are using now, or maybe have been banned in Europe and other places that are uh, plastic beads. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and so. Uh, you know, I did not know we'd get a lesson on microdermabrasion today, Fred. Thank you. <laughs> yes, thank you, Fred. And then, and so people are like, okay, well, they come up with that and say, this is interesting. Uh, oh, this is good for exfoliation because X, Y, Z. And the, the scientists themselves figure that out, even though they're in their own bubble because they're not very well connected to, you can imagine, to the cosmetic world, actually, like Caltech, you know. Um, but, you know, they also use products well, and their spouses use products. So, uh, yeah, and so yeah. we're looking at, at what do we do with this? Uh, how do we uh, license it to uh, pharma, um, a cosmetic company to make uh, environmentally friendly products, you know? Well, that's a great so, point. I was thinking, you know, we take the jump from geology to dermatology in one yeah. quick leap. But 
exactly. you know, Fred, um, you've, as the director of the Office of Technology Transfer, talked about, you know, Caltech's aggressive patenting strategy, and you yeah. kind of create a flurry of patent activity. I mean, that's your uh, strategy. I want to know, one, how similar that is to what you uh, think about, Neil, in terms of trying to imagine all the potential applications for technology. And then secondly, I just kind of think about how do you do it at Caltech? I know, you know, um, Larry Gilbert was famous for keeping close relationships with all of the researchers, and he had a great and very detailed understanding of technology and its applications. I mean, how do you imagine <laughs> all these applications? Do you have blue sky sessions with the researchers, and do you bring in? I don't think they have the budgets for these things. So, mm -hmm. so let me try and go first, and mm -hmm. let's see if, what, yeah. whether Fred agrees. So, when we look at IP, we we try and look at you know the the twenty other potential applications for the technology. Um, that way, if something's truly a pivot, you can see how that you know the example of geology to dermatology might fit. So we spend a bunch of time working through that, and we kind of think about it as a hedge, and we think about it as a multiplier. Maybe there's actually an asset to sell if if it fails, and there's a multiplier of you know there's a lot more value for a company potentially unlock because we've actually laid out the patent and the patent strategy around those uh, the patent sets um, and the claims. Um, so I don't know that you know a company in seed stage will get to twenty, but out of a university, we've never seen you know, really large claim sets. We, we've actually never seen any claim sets that we think were, <laughs> I don't mean to insult Fred here at all, but we've never seen any claim sets that we thought were good out of any university. Um, now, I, I was just with a, a VC yesterday who was telling me you haven't dealt with the right universities yet, um, <laughs> even though we've dealt with some, some fairly big ones. Um, or, you know, the technology was spun out before we, we talked to the fairly big ones. And one, yeah. one of the technologies we're invested in, I think, came out of JPL, actually. Um, Fred. Okay. What, what, what area? Just to um, get a sense. Yeah, it, it was a camera, actually. Uh, it was a lens that was developed by, by JPL for NASA to be able to look at debris in space. And it was licensed for okay. healthcare. And it's now being used to um, look at Alzheimer's, uh, early detection of Alzheimer's. Okay. Um, well, you know, so in terms of uh, relevant claims and, and patents uh, out of academia, you know, you have to take a bit of a step back and understand how we do it. Um, most places do it. Um, we, so we, we're running against publications by uh, faculty members. Um, and, and, you know, as you may know, if things are published, then it affects your the, the rights you can get from, from patents. In the U.S., you have a one-year uh, grace period, you know, after publication to file a patent. Uh, the rest of the world doesn't allow you that luxury. So if you publish, then you have to forego your international rights, and, and just a few countries allow a grace period in the U.S. does. So you can get still the U.S., which is a big market, uh, the largest. Well, I'm so sorry for... Yeah. For our listeners, that's when a researcher gets to a place where it's no, noteworthy of, of sharing the research, they, they publish a paper. And right. the, that information becomes public information, can't really be patented the same way anymore. Right. And you can, as you can imagine, there's always uh, competing groups in different universities, and they, they, rush to public, they want to rush to publication to be the other groups. Um, so there's a bit of that competition going on. So. As a tech transfer office, we we uh, we have to try to get ahead of that. So we work closely with the faculty to get to make sure that it's close to us before they publish. 
And so we typically start the patenting process before we would actually want to. Uh, and you know, we want we would want to have more developed uh, thinking about the, the invention, uh, maybe more prototyping, more data, an unlimited budget, <laughs> unlimited budget, <laughs> and unlimited budget to figure out where the 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 invention could be, you know, to apply and what kind of applications are the best for that particular invention. And so, because that work is done earlier, we don't have that those data, uh, and so the the, the patents are going to be sometimes broader uh, in claims. Uh, you know, sometimes you have an idea what what the thing is for. If, if it's a, a cancer drug, then you know the compound. That's very clear. You know, you you patent the compound, and that's what you go after. Uh, in other cases, it's more of a maybe a, a broader kind of concept. And and not, and those claims don't would not read directly on a on a product that you you make. But you know we tend to leave these patent applications open so that someone can come in uh, when they do a company uh, and do continuations on these patents to then read directly on the products they're making, and that's what they do typically. So uh, long story short, when this you know a VC comes along and a business plan gets. In, put in place is put in place, and they figure out what the market is that they're going to go after. Uh, most of the time, we've been patenting for three, four, five, six years, uh, and so they inherit that um, portfolio that was uh, sometimes uninformed about the type of applications. And so that's why, you know, Neil, when you say, you know, a lot of the yeah, claims, it's not Fred's not, fault. Yes, yeah, sorry, I'm not blaming. No, I'm not trying to blame. No, 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 no. But I'm trying to explain why that that is. Um, you know, there's there's a, a good reason for that. Um, and and sometimes we do have that information early on. And you know, uh, the other the other thing is, uh, and I guess I don't want that to be part in the podcast, but. You know, budgets are limited, and sometimes universities had to um, ask patent attorneys to do minimal work on on the on the patent just to get a patent to issue. It's better than nothing, but uh, you know they can't spend too much time either. So, you know, so you get yeah. what you pay for. Well, Fred, with um, like federal grant money seems to be declining, right? And um, actually, it's you, not. <laughs> it's not. Oh, good, good. Uh, well, I, in some fields it is, but it's, we're probably going to see a resurgence of it in an even bigger way, right? Yeah, and so we haven't been affected by that. Uh, we thought in 2008, 9, 10, things were going down, government is not, but uh, I think the top universities are still getting a lot of the, you know, they're good at wedding grants and getting funded. And um, no matter what the president has said, Congress has passed you know, funding for NIH and and I think some increase. So we haven't seen uh, much decrease. Um, what 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 percentage of your grants do you guys apply for? Do you get approved for? Can you is that a number that's easy to share? Not really. I think it's it's one it's it's not the top in the nation. It's 
very close to 50%. Um, so that that's the biggest number I've ever heard, by the way, Chris. So no wonder their stuff's not going. I, I think it's in the 40s, but uh, you know, I, I'm not sure exactly where in the 40s. It's not uh, it's not 50, but it's somewhere in the 40s. Um, but it's, it's it's high. It's very high. Um, and, and, and Chris, just to give you reference, uh, Steve Reed, who we had on this podcast, had like a 40% approval rate. Uh, yeah, so it's just, it's just super tough. So what they're doing is incredible, especially on an organizational level with that many faculty. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's extraordinary. Fred, what do you see as, uh, in terms of the trends? Where are the, where is the technology transfer growing where's the do, do you get a sense uh can you see this thing moving along and see where um the areas of focus and the most promising parts of tech transfer are yeah uh, i think this well, yeah hold on that that's like yeah. sounds like two questions to me chris uh -huh. are you asking about specific technologies or are you asking about the evolution of technology transfer because i think you should ask I both see. yeah i'm asking the first question yeah just about technologies um, but I think secondly, too, it's very important, Fred, you alluded to the change in the way technology transfers are done uh, in the offices and how they've developed. I don't know if they're more incubators or how that's fleshed out, but that would be a, uh, something interesting, too. But in the first yeah. phase. Yeah. So in terms of that, so I can address both. In terms of technologies, we tend to follow the science um, trends with a, a lag, right? So, uh, for example, last summer, Caltech got a $750 million gift for sustainability from the Resnick family. Uh, and so, as that is ramping up, um, the research is, is done. You know, we're going to start receiving a lot of uh, inventions related to, you know, water, ecology, uh, the environment, basically. Um, and so we'll have a lot of that available. Just that, so within the university, whatever is trendy, we have a, a new center for transitional science that's primarily trans transitional medicine. And, and, and so, for example, uh, during COVID, at the very beginning, they put out proposals and we have, I think, selected 18 projects we funded to address you know, therapies, diagnostic, uh, neuropsychological effect of being quarantined and of, a, of, a, of pandemics, uh, uh, you know, how, it, how the pandemic um, propagates, you know, by the numbers, all that. So and that will generate a bunch of new inventions that then are, will be, you know, ripe for commercialization. Um, so there's the internal part of things, and then there's the external that come from the market. You know, uh, you know, there are times where everything, you know, there were every, everything was green tech. Remember those those days? Yeah, right. <laughs> and you know, a lot of VCs lost their shirts on that. Um, I, then, I don't think anybody made money on it. <laughs> I don't think so. You know, people didn't realize how much how capital intensive these uh, were, and and it's a long road, basically. That's maybe, you know, better suited for uh, government to, to fund. But um, before that, it was nanotech. There was a, a time of biotech. Uh, within biotech, you know, there was uh, immunotherapy for cancer. And so there, uh, uh, there are trends that, that go along. And, and faculty members uh, 
uh, as they're smart um, to get money, they they go along with that and and they pivot to to get into these uh, areas where the funding is more plentiful from the government, and then also there's more interest from the outside world. Um, so, so I would say lately uh, there's a lot, of, as I said earlier, that fits our, our uh, a convergence of bio and engineering. Uh, AI is creeping up into everything in biotech. Yeah. Uh, drug discovery, uh, uh, all kinds of you know cell analysis, single cell analysis, things that uh, need ma major bioinformatics infrastructure to to solve. And uh, AIs and machine learning are everywhere. Um, there's uh, stuff like uh, aerospace. Uh, now, aerospace no, it's no longer just for the, the big ones. Uh, there's a lot of startups in this area. Now that there's a commercial product potentially available, so there's companies that are doing drones, and and we have a center for that, Caltech, uh, called CAST. Uh, so we have things like a heavy lift drone for delivery of packages that are you know 100 pounds instead instead of like 10 pounds. Uh, flying ambulances, uh, autonomous systems that can pick up a patient somewhere, fly over traffic in a city and bring them to the hospital in, in 10 minutes, uh, you know, um, all automated. Um, so automation is big, uh, autonomy. autonomy. Um, and then you have all kinds of things in materials, new materials, all kinds of applications. Um, so, you know, it's uh, it's... For us, it's, it's a bit all over the place, really. You know, Fred, is there anything else you're looking at that seems as ridiculous as, as the camera and a chip? <laughs> uh, For a phone? It, it, it would be fun just, you know, yeah. over a decade to see if you yeah. saw, you know, even two interesting trends. Like, this is completely ridiculous. And, you know, it turns out that <laughs> it was, you know, it'd be too hard to predict, right? Yeah, yeah, I think it, it would be. But no, I have to think about that. All right. Well, if you if you see something uh, that's completely crazy, know that we can just do a five minute podcast as an update to this. Okay. <laughs> um, and then there's also a big trend for universities now to um, because of the federal funding scare. Although again, I don't think we've seen anything decrease, but it's always uh, we want to diversify. So there's more of a trend to go and partner with companies. And you now we have we've had um, recently st started a new partnership with AWS in uh, two areas: uh, AI and machine learning on the one hand, and then another area, quantum computing. So we have big research programs for them in that. We have uh, in quantum computing. That's interesting. Very yeah. cool. We have a big partnership with Amgen. Uh, another big one with Dow. Boeing, Northrop, so you know we have uh, that going as well, um, uh, and that diversifies a bit the portfolio. Also, it tells you a bit of a trend. Also, I think in academia and and a place like Caltech is significant because we've been very fundamental, focused on fundamental research. Uh, but now we have a couple of centers that were started for that are more translational in nature. So in between fundamental and commercialization. 
and and more work with companies. So there's definitely a trend to uh, I would say more applied, but uh, it's no longer um, shameful for a university to to do things that are more applied and not just fundamental. The purists, uh, I guess, are losing the battle here. And, yeah, I think it's a good thing because we need to show that uh, all the research that's being done in academia has really an impact in society. So, and that's that, that's the ticket by getting these technologies to people. Can, can you give us? Can you share a little bit more about the story I read about about how quick JPL was able to come out with um, some ventilators and you know during during yeah. all of that? Just just to give an idea, people to give an idea of what what the power of the university you're at really is. Yeah. Um, and so during the, uh, the beginning of the pandemic, when people were at home and, and not able to get to the lab and do a lot of the work they're supposed to, they're, they're, they were doing, uh, maybe had more time, also felt that they could help. Uh, and so a group of them at JPL decided to design a, a new um, a ventilator that would uh, be cheaper and it turned out to be an order of magnitude cheaper than the ventilators. Uh, more rugged, you know, able to use a whole bunch of uh, all kinds of power, power sources in the field if you had to set up tents outside. And, um, and so more robust in terms of with, withstanding all kinds of uh, shock and, and conditions. Uh, and also only use parts that were readily available uh, on the shelves and would not compete with the regular ventilator uh, manufacturing. So the, one of the, the conditions is that we're not going to use anything that the regular ventilator, any parts that the regular ventilators are using because we don't get in the way of slowing that down. So we're going to be outside of that. So in 37 days, they came up with a new design. They worked. Uh, Closely with uh, doctors uh, at, in, in um, I think it was uh, where is it in, in New York City at Mount Sinai, um, and to test the equipment on you know uh, patients and and uh, and and it's just thirty seven days they came up with a new design that uh, was approved uh, I think April thirtieth by um, the FDA for, uh, for emergency authorization and 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 all the uh, the designs and uh, all the, the CAD designs are available for companies to come in and license those and uh, and so we got involved in the licensing side and we decided to make it available for uh, we have a few patents filed on this to make it available to uh, companies for uh, on the royalty free basis uh, during the time of the pandemic and so we got over 150, I think, applications for um, to make this ventilator. Obviously, we don't manufacture, we, we, so we went as far as a prototype. Uh, and, 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 and then we needed to partner with industry to, to make it. Um, and so we took applications. We want to make sure to vet the, 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 the companies. Um, and we selected, I think, uh, 10 to 15 U.S. companies. And interestingly, they're all uh, small, medium-sized medium companies. So that's, you know, contribute to 
keeping people employed and economic development as well. Uh, and another 10-ish uh, foreign companies in Brazil and Europe and um, I forgot where exactly, but uh, around the world. And so we issued these licenses. Uh, and now they're off to the races to, to build these things. Um, so it's pretty remarkable how quickly they came up with the design and how quickly we were able to get them out uh, um, and license them out. So it's a bit unusual, I would say, um, to... Um, Fascinating though, right? Yeah. It, it's, it's pretty phenomenal that you get to be a part of that. I was, I was trying to do some calculation on um, the work you guys have done earlier um, uh, on how many people you've affected in this world. But it, you know, if there's 9 billion people here, uh, clearly you've affected at least 80% of them through the work you've done. <laughs> well, uh, I think... Those, yeah. That's that's just a big responsibility here to put on our shoulders. <laughs> well, there's uh, an answer to your question: Can we make the world better by basic research, Fred? That you <laughs> yeah. offered in your but TED you talk. know yeah the interesting part I, it's it, it's become an even more uh, obvious like with the recent events uh, you know the police brutality and all that is that uh, the reason they're able to wear body cams. It's because of this technology, um, you know, the police. Uh, otherwise, you can imagine, you know, go back to CCD. You can never have that that cheap, that small, and with such low power consumptions. So, in, in the early days of this technology, also you saw things like the uh, Arab Springs, uh, where people were able to mobilize, you know, people for uprisings using their phones and, and filming the situation, it's very different when you see what's actually happening and people get much more involved that way. So, you know, and, and the societal impact has been really uh, pretty amazing to get these technologies that help. To, so the combination of, I think the powerful part of the, the, the camera phone is you, you combine picture taking, video taking, with the ability to upload and connect to the rest of the world and social media and internet. So that combination, made all these things possible um you know yeah the immediacy and so, just removing all that friction right yeah it's a direct path but also i guess technology has a double-edged nature right the imaging technology is uh useful for facial recognition yeah <laughs> i think it's being used yeah. in your former home country of china chris very effectively that's right that's right yeah but I guess you have to weigh it in the balance. I think you're right, Fred. The the it, on balance, this has been such a boon to humanity, and really, we can see it now for the world to see what uh, has really been going on right before right. our eyes. Yeah. Yeah, but you're right. Everything has a, a two sides. Mm -hmm. well, Fred, we really appreciate your time today. Um, you're welcome to stay with us for the next twenty minutes as we finish out the episode, or. Or we can let you be free. It depends on what you want. Uh, <laughs> it depends what you're doing. But could I take one more minute to tell you what uh, the, the the other part of the question that? Uh, oh, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Just uh, about uh, what the trend. What are we doing? What what universities are doing to to make sure they um, help connect closer to the commercial sector and 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 so. Um, so basically, we're uh, as the, the the venture community has moved more. Uh, I think 
more risk averse and maybe later stage, we've had to come up with systems internally to get the technologies more developed, more ready for them to take. Um, you know, when I started in this field, I think, uh, especially in the, you know, late 99, late nineties, early two thousands, you know, the bubble, uh, there was a lot of funding going around and a lot of things that shouldn't have gotten funded did get funded. Uh, but you know, it was, it was, uh, it was a trend at the time. Everything at dot com was funded. Right. Um, so, um, and then after the, the bubble burst, the VCs became much more uh, risk averse and for a while, at least. And but I think the trend has continued. Uh, and so universities uh, decided to, in general to do, to put in place programs to help. And, and that includes different things. So I said what we do at Caltech and this not too different from other places. Um, uh, so one of the things we, there's three things you need to help commercialize the expertise to get from entrepreneurs, mentorship, to help uh, faculty and students that our office helps, but you know the, the, the people who actually start the companies are should be involved as well. Um, so the entrepreneurial community that's plentiful in Silicon Valley and you know in Boston. Uh, then early early stage funding is also key, and and that's hard to find. And then maybe uh, the facilities where these companies can. Uh, start, uh, and I think this is the least important. But we talk about incubators. You know, a lot of places have done it. Um, so we've had an internal fund that's uh, that goes to the faculty for projects that have commercial potential, and it was endowed by uh, Jim Rothenberg from the Capital Group. And uh, so every year we award uh, eight to ten projects within the that goes to the lab to prototype things to get more data on the technology that's promising for commercialization. So that brings it closer to uh, a commercializable, commercializable technology, and oftentimes actually it is funded at that point by VCs. But a lot of technologies, it's not enough. So we added another program, have, uh, called, we call the Entrepreneur in Residence Program, where we hire uh, one or two people from the startup world to come in with us to work with us for a couple of years and help these technologies be formed and mentor the uh, the faculty uh, in, form, in company formation, um, and that's been going on for six seven years. It's working well, uh, and so the next step for us is going to be uh, we realize that this internal fund is not enough and that the comp the, comp the to form a company you need to spend money on the business side of things. Uh, market research and uh, you know hiring people, all that. So now we're working on a fund that will provide the first seed funding to these companies uh, with the help of the EIRs, and then position uh, those companies for a, uh, a venture round. And, and so that's the kinds of things that people are doing, and, and and eventually we'll have also an incubator where the companies can choose to to be housed uh but you know companies have the choice to go wherever they want um, in terms of setting up their shop so all these programs are designed to get the technologies uh, closer to a point where a vc comes in and say oh yeah that's i can see you've done a lot of work there's a team there's a great portfolio of patents 
you have a good pitch deck, uh, you know what you're doing, so we're ready to fund it. So that's 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 the trend now that everybody's going after. I'll stop. How do you choose <laughs> the entrepreneurs in residence, Fred? How do we choose them? Yeah. Uh, you know, they come through our network of people we've known, people who've, who've done startups with Caltech. So our first one was um, had taken a, a company uh, to acquisition by one of our faculty members. And he was thrown in between companies. He's a, you know, he's been a serial entrepreneur. He started five or six companies and a few of them successful. And um, so he was the first one to we designed a program with him. He came in for two years and he left with another company to run at a Caltech. And uh, meanwhile, he helped um, maybe 15 to 20 new companies being formed while he during his, ten, his two years uh, at Caltech. Um, and the current ones uh, also uh, have done Caltech startups before. And, and so, you know, that's we want people who've done the, the actual, who've been in the companies, uh, build it, build, uh, who've built a team, who've uh, run the companies, raised money, you know, who've gone through the motions and probably have failed a few times, uh, mm -hmm. preferably. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's the kind of people that we try to get. Yeah. And Fred, does Caltech look outside of the institution itself? I mean, do you scour the earth for other technologies or potential applications and bring that stuff in or is, is it all organic? Yeah, no, we don't, we don't have the resources to do that. Um, so mm -hmm. all the time, so we don't really, uh, I mean, we're aware, we try to stay aware of what's going on in the world, but, um, it's right. primarily from within to the outside, you know? Mm -hmm. Great. Fred, thank you very much for all very the welcome. insights you shared. Yeah, I really appreciate having you on this uh, podcast today. Yeah, Fantastic. thank you very much, Fred.